Welcome, everyone. Glad you could make it out here. And for those of you online, I'm glad you could tune in. I want to start off with a scripture uh, reading from Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 to 40. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. These words from Jesus encapsulate the critical idea that we should love and pursue God in totality of our humanity. With these words, Jesus points out a command for our total devotion to him and to God. Unfortunately, for an ever-growing section of Christianity, this means that we need to talk about and struggle with theological issues and tough questions. That growing population in the church doesn't like debate. They don't like division, and tackling divisive issues isn't something they think is important, because they believe that unity in the church is something to be chased after at all costs. In fact, I recall one very conversation I had with some individuals here at Auburn. I was discussing and questioning with someone um, what they thought about the end times. Obviously, a very complicated issue, and one that can be divisive in some Christian circles. As I continued to ask questions of the person, another individual, sitting a few pews back, piped up and said something to the effect of, well, it doesn't really matter what we think, because at the end we'll eventually figure out the truth. I've never been so close to acting out Jesus' table flipping in the temple as I was at that very moment. I remember being incredibly angry with the person, albeit I tried my best to hide it at all costs. I remember wanting to lash back to say something like, people like you are the reason why others are leaving the church, because of the refusal to look at complex issues and questions about God and the Bible and things that they may be struggling with in their life. However, Jesus' words in Matthew are probably a much more appropriate response to this person's erring idea. To interact with and explore these issues is to, in my mind, follow the command we read in Matthew. That we love God so much that we want to have an, and we have an interest in getting to know him and who he truly is and who he's truly revealed to be in the Bible. With that in mind, this week we'll be looking at a subject that has caused arguably one of the largest splits in the church as we know it, works. As Brent mentioned last week, oftentimes Christians offer up pat answers when it comes to some of life's most difficult questions. This often goes the same for different aspects of Christianity and the Christian life. Oftentimes, we're taught watered-down versions of very important concepts, and we run with these super-simplistic understandings. 
neglecting to look further into them because we assume we have the basic understanding under wraps. This can often be to our detriment as we either perpetuate a failed understanding that we have around subjects, or we can sometimes not have enough knowledge on the subject to pick out the subtle nuances and differences between a correct and incorrect interpretation or notion. This is why a series like the one we're going through is so important. It's important to constantly remind ourselves of the main truths of Christianity, to run through what each means and what the Bible teaches on them, because they are so seemingly basic, sometimes we gloss over them. I have no doubt that if I was to ask who agrees with the statement that we as Christians are justified by faith alone, apart from works, the vast majority, if not all, would agree. But what does this mean, and what role do works play in salvation? Now, as Brent also stated about his topic last week, this topic on works could have a whole series devoted to it, and we probably still wouldn't exhaust it. However, it's my hope that you get a better understanding of what this statement means and what is meant when we say it in the church. On October 31st in the year 1517, the well-known church reformer Martin Luther nailed a document known as the Nine-Five Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. You see, in the 16th century, theologians and scholars from all across Europe had begun to start questioning the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. Before this time, the writings and texts of both the Bible and early Christians were not as readily available. During this time, however, these writings became, uh, began to become more widely available, and as a result, theologians from across Europe were able to study the Bible and its text in more detailed and in freely accessible ways. During his study of these available resources, Luther came to agree with two beliefs held by uh, a theologian before him, St. Augustine. Namely, number one, that the Bible and not the church was the ultimate authority— And number two, that salvation was by God's grace alone and not by works, that one must or does perform. During his time of study, Luther also visited uh, the church in Rome. Luther was greatly troubled by this visit. He was troubled by the extravagance he saw in the church. He was also troubled by the apparent corruption of the pope and the clergy that he saw there. Specifically, he took issue with the practice of the church selling something called indulgences. These indulgences, very simplistically put, were purported to absolve sinners. You see, the church officials were selling these indulgences as a means by releasing people from having to feel repentant for one's sin. Additionally, the church officials even went so far as to say that people could buy these indulgences for loved ones who had already died, and that these indulgences would then limit the amount of time that their loved ones would spend in purgatory. Luther saw the sale of these as being corrupt, and in response, he penned and posted his nine-five theses. Luther believed that the people were falling for a man-made doctrine and not one that had biblical backing. He believed that only God could bring about true salvation, and that this was a false doctrine, uh, Uh, sorry, that this false doctrine was bringing about a false assurance of peace in individuals, 
in turn causing them to neglect true repentance. Simply put, someone may have the idea that they could buy their way or their loved ones into heaven and into salvation. Luther's 9-5 Theses invited scholarly debate on the issue. However, Pope Leo X instead excommunicated Luther from the Roman Catholic Church. He labeled him as a heretic, and the church issued a death warrant, which gave anyone permission to kill Luther. This event arguably kicked off one of the single largest shifts in Christianity and the church as we know it today. Luther's devotion to the two ideas, number one, that the Bible and not the church was the ultimate authority, and that number two, salvation was by God's grace alone and not by good works, these would be the springboard for something called the Protestant Reformation. The words of a sermon I've heard on this subject come to mind when thinking about this shift in thinking. The pastor said, The Reformers set their feet firmly on the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified and refused to move an inch. The Roman Catholic Church believed in Scripture, believed in grace, believed in faith, believed in, uh, believed in the glory of God, but the Reformers added the most important word of all, alone. That Scripture is the authority and Scripture alone. That we are saved by grace and grace alone, through faith and faith alone, in Christ and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We heard it read earlier that we are saved by grace through faith in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 10 said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom uh, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, uh, uh, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of the works that, uh, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace, through faith. A statement that more than likely uh, we've heard if we spent any time around the church. But what does it mean? From the first portion of verses, uh, of verses we read in chapter 2, we can see that without Christ, we're spiritually dead. Because we are spiritually dead and without Christ, we are unable to understand the glories of Christ. On the other hand, with Christ, we experience new life and are animated by God in his glory. In these verses, Paul compares life apart from Christ and that, uh, and that with Christ. We go from hell 
to heaven, from bondage to freedom, from gloom to the light, from despair to hope, from wrath to glory, from death to life. After making these comparisons, the Apostle Paul pens the words in verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In our conversations with people who are not Christians, we may be asked, how is someone saved? Most importantly, I think we need to make sure that the person asking this question knows that it isn't because of anything that we can or have done. It's a pretty common thing to hear from non-Christians that God can't save them. They're just too far gone. Truth is, if it were up to our actions, this probably would be true. It would be true for you, and it would be true for me. Nothing that I have done or could do, would be able to save or earn me salvation from God. Even the Apostle Paul, who had everything from uh, the outside and work sense covered off, stated elsewhere in his letters that it was all for nothing. Remember back to our series on Philippians? Chapter 3, verses 4 to 11 said, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted, it, uh, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith." that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. You see, to accept the idea as stated in Ephesians that salvation is not a result of any works of our own, it goes against the culture we have nowadays. And it went against the culture back in the past. Paul had both things that he had in control and things he didn't in check in both his pedigree and his performance. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day in absolute compliance with the Abrahamic covenant. Paul was a descendant of the people of Israel. Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was also a Pharisee. And among the Pharisees, He was the best. Paul saw himself as blameless under the law. He was an all-star when it came to things of the law and so-called achievements of the flesh. Yet Paul states that everything he has achieved is rubbish in compared to what he has through uh, Jesus Christ. 
In today's culture, sometimes even in the church, there's this idea that we can get far enough on what we can do ourselves. Just keep the scales balanced enough on the one side, and it'll all work out in the end. I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm not the worst one out there. God knows, what I'm, uh, God knows that I'm not perfect, but God also knows that I'm trying my best, so he'll be okay with that. Unfortunately, this isn't the case. Attempting to achieve salvation through things you do will have you judged in accordance to how you measure up against God's perfect law. Anything but perfection won't get you salvation. You see, there's a massive gulf between the utter sinfulness of our human nature and the standard of righteousness that God has. No human can attain this righteousness because of our sinful nature. The very root of our human being is tainted by sin, and God can't let any sin into his presence. To put it in an interesting anecdote, Imagine that an airplane flies over the South Atlantic and crashes a thousand miles away from the coast. In the plane, there are three individuals, a great Olympic swimmer, an average swimmer, and someone who can't swim at all. The Olympic swimmer calls out, follow me, I'll get you out of this. And he takes off at an impressive crawl, heading for the tip of South America, a thousand miles away. The other two jump in after him. In about 30 seconds, the non-swimmer, he goes down to J.V. Jones' locker. It takes about 30 minutes for the average swimmer to be deep-sixed. But the champion swimmer, on the other hand, churns away for 25 hours, covering an impressive 50 miles. Terrific! Only 475 more hours to go. He'll be there in 19 days if he doesn't slow down. No matter how good we think we are, or how great our works are, they will never be able to attain the level required for God. The final verses of Ephesians give us another reason why salvation isn't based on works. So that no one can boast. If our salvation was gained through works uh, and things that we had done, there would be a heaven full of people like the Pharisees. No one who is saved will will have any grounds to boast in front of God. Not only that, but no one will want to boast about what they did. So now we understand that we are not saved by uh, anything that we can do. We aren't saved by works. So how are we saved? Grace. Verse 8 said, For grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Grace is the unmerited favor. Grace is the love of God going toward the undeserving and sinful people. Through this undeserved gift, we are able to gain forgiveness for our sins. We are able to receive and gain the riches that Christ's sacrifice brings us, a new life in Christ. I read the story of a preacher who was holding a communion service. At the service, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge from the Supreme Court. In fact, it was the very judge who had sent the burglar to jail, where he had served seven years. And after his release, this burglar had been converted to Christianity 
and uh, became a Christian worker. After the service, the judge walked out with the pastor and said to him, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail? The pastor said, yes, but I didn't know that you noticed. The two walked along together in silence a few moments, and then the judge said, yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. And the pastor nodded and replied to him, indeed, what a marvelous miracle. Then the judge said, but to whom do you refer? But I, uh, why, I was referring to the uh, convict, the conversion of the convict. The judge replied back, well, I, was ref- I wasn't referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The pastor, surprised, replied back, you were thinking of yourself? I don't understand. Yes, the judge replied, it's normal and natural for the burglar to receive God's grace when he came out of jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he saw Jesus as his savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from the earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers and to go to church, to take communion and so on. I went through Oxford and I took my degrees, was called to the bar and eventually became a judge. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive it. I'm the greater miracle of his grace. Grace, the unmerited favor from God. Grace with the smallest part of works mixed in, however, is no longer grace. In turn, no one will be saved except through God's unmerited grace. Verse 8 also states that we have been saved by grace through faith. If there is no faith, there is no grace, and in turn, there is no salvation. Faith and belief plays a massive, uh, play massive roles throughout the Bible. Faith is not just an intellectual pursuit or understanding of truth, and it is also not just a belief. True faith is a combination of both belief and trust. There's once a man who was a very accomplished tightrope walker. One of his particular stunts was walking a tightrope strung above Niagara Falls. In the course of his various stunts on this tightrope, he carried a man from one side to the other. Upon completing the stunt and delivering the man to the, safely to the other side, he turned to the crowd watching, turned to the person closest to him and said, do you believe that I can do that with you? The person responded back to the acrobat, of course, I've just seen you do it. The tightrope walker responded back, well, hop on then. I'll carry you back across. The person in the crowd's response, not a chance. See, that person in the crowd, they believed, but they had no trust. They had no real faith in the tightrope walker. Faith requires both trust and belief. Much like being carried by the tightrope walker from one side to the other, 
we need to be carried by Jesus from the side of death and separation from God to that of salvation and eternal life with him. In order for this to happen, we must first believe that salvation is not accomplished through anything that we can do. We need to be carried by Jesus. Secondly, we must understand and believe that salvation is only by grace in that it is a free, an unmerited, or unearned gift. We cannot mix works and grace together. The two are mutually exclusive. And finally, we need to understand that salvation is accomplished through faith. We must completely believe and put our trust in Christ and the works he's accomplished on the cross. We are saved by grace and grace alone, through faith and faith alone, in Christ and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Daniel.